Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July 15, 2016, episode 1828 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Friday. That means it's time for a listener council Q&A show. These are all questions that you guys have for the council. Remember, we hear from half of the council each week, so you'll hear from six council members today and... Six or seven council members next week. Got a lot of great stuff for you today. Here's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to talk about getting the ground ready to plant a muscadine vineyard with Nick Ferguson. We're going to talk about a Unimog with Tim Glantz. What the heck is a Unimog? You'll have to wait to find out. Uh, we'll talk about choosing the right cookware when you want lightweight cookware with Keith Snow. We'll talk about keeping your grass the right height for Pastured Poultry with Darby Simpson. We'll talk about setting up a curriculum as a new homeschool family with Mike and Sue LaPreeze. And we will discuss the ins and outs of aquatic layered systems with Jeff Lawton. It will be a great show, and it's all because of you, because without you, these questions for the council would not exist. Remember to send in a question for every, any of these members of the council you'll hear from today or the rest of the council. Just send the email to jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com and put TSPC expert in the subject line and send it on out to me. And make sure you tell me which expert you want me to send the question to using the last names. will make it more likely that I'll see your question when I go through my inbox, because that's usually how I search. I have them looking for questions for Tim Glantz. I search for Glantz, that type of thing. Anyway. Before we get to that, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was, do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. Hey guys, why don't you show off your survival podcast pride by shopping at tspgear.com where we have awesome tools like the Pocket Shot Slingshot and the TSP Edition of the Genesis Knife by MT Knives along with shirts, patches, and more. Learn more at tspgear.com And next up I have the history segment for the year 1828. I have the Tariff of Abomination. I have the beginning of the Liberal Wars. And I have... The Red Barn Murder. All of these are interesting. I'm going to read uh, the beginning of the Liberal Wars today because it does have a lot to say about today in Alex's take. But before that, in other news, Jules Verne is born in France. He will write the classic adventures such as Journey to the Center of the Earth, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Around the World in 80 Days. He will inspire authors in this day such as Michael Crichton and Ray Bradbury. The founder of the Red Cross is born in this year, 1828. Henry Durant will be the first recipient of the Nobel Prize for organizing the Red Cross. In modern days, it sees less organized for helping processing for helping than for processing donations. I agree with that. The DC electric motor is invented. It is more complex than the electric motor that Faraday invented. The original model is in a museum. And guess what? Even though it was made in 1828, it still works. Anyway, the beginning of the Liberal Wars, what's that all about? Although the Napoleonic War of Conquest are over, 
But a rebellion has broken out in Portugal. After the death of King John VI, the secession has come into dispute because King John's elder son, Pedro, is already ruling Brazil. John's younger son, Miguel, points out that Brazil is now independent, so Miguel should take the throne. Neither Portugal nor Brazil want reunification. So Pedro abdicates the throne of Portugal in favor of his seven-year-old daughter, Maria, rather than his brother. Maria needs a regent, and regency politics are always tricky. So Pedro attempts to appease the various factions by embedding Portugal's constitution, uh, amending Portugal's, Portugal's constitution to join the opposing factions and the names his sister as a regent. That doesn't work out. The conservative aristocracy still wants Miguel as ruler and want to rid themselves of the Napoleonic legal liberties imposed on them. Miguel agrees, takes the throne, and starts putting things right. Right is defined as back to the good old days with the good old boys in charge. Those who prefer the Napoleonic liberties are called liberals, and thus the liberal wars begin. Mass arrest, blood and sorrow, the liberals are going to win, but it's going to take a while. My take by Alex Shrugged. Keep in mind that the word liberal is used here in the old sense of the word, one who defaults to liberty. Napoleon has pushed hard to break the back of the aristocracy, but after Napoleon's defeat, there was some backlash. The aristocracy wanted its playground back, but the Napoleonic code of laws made a lot of sense, especially to recently freed serfs. The laws were reasonably easy to understand, which made it difficult for the aristocracy to confuse things. Certainly people in power don't want the serfs to understand the law, because they understood the law, then the serfs would start asking embarrassing questions like, why are you doing this to me when it says right here in the law that you can't do this to me? The Napoleonic Code also limited judicial power, so judges couldn't simply legislate from the bench. Changes in the law had to come through the legislature. I know what you're thinking. When a congressman complains that he can't read the bill because he needs an accountant and two lawyers just to understand the bill, perhaps there should not be a bill in the first place. If we had followed that rule, there would no, be no Obamacare, nor for that matter, a Federal Reserve. And I completely agree. I think if we're going to have laws and legislation that may be a bill, a piece of legislation being passed, should be limited to about three to four pages, have to be written in common language, and if you can't do that, you don't need to be jacking around with it. That's just my take by Jack Spearco. So the more things change, the more indeed they do stay the same. The people in power making the law confusing so they can use it against you without you understanding it and ram a bunch of crap down your throat that you don't want because you don't know you're getting it until it shows up. Yeah, that's, that's where we're at today, and it's not as much different as it was a couple hundred years ago as you might think. Next up, time for the Bob Wells Plan of the Week. Since I missed last week, we have two this uh, week. And then I have a special announcement about the Bob Wells Plan of the Week that will be coming in just a second. Anyway, this week we have Mini Royal and Royal Lee Cherry. They are adaptable from Zone 7 to 9. If you live in the South and have always wanted to grow cherries, then these are the trees for you. You need to plant one of each for pollination. They only require 250 chill hours below 45 degrees. Mini Royal is a medium-sized fruit firm and flavorful red cherry that is mainly used as a pollinizer for Royal Lee and is very productive. The Royal Lee has a heart-shaped cherry that is early season favorite, prized for its high productivity and excellent flavor. Bob Wells specializes in edible landscape, including fruit trees, berry plants, and nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty trees. Find this plant more at bobwellsnursery.com. Right, here's a special announcement about the plant of the week. There will be no more plant of the week. This was the last one. 
Uh, it's not because Bob Wells is not going to work with the show anymore. I've actually had a sponsorship position open up, and uh, I'm allowing Bob to become an official sponsor of the show. So he will go to a sponsorship mention once a week like all of the other sponsors. And uh, the, the sponsor that's leaving us is leaving on good terms and simply is not getting enough business from the advertising, and that would be Frank Sharp Jr. of Fortress Defense Consultants. I think it's a difficult business that he's in trying to draw from a national and international audience to a training that you have to go to uh, to his, you know, Indiana to to take. And uh, he's just not getting enough calls from the audience to make it worth continuing as a sponsor. So I've allowed Bob to take his spot. So that's why that's happening. Nobody's upset. Nobody's angry. Nobody's done anything wrong. It's just a business decision. And I, I would still say this. Uh, I'm probably going to leave Frank's banner on the site. I'll uh, just remove him from the rotation. I actually, I want to tell you guys something about how I take care of sponsors that take care of me. Uh, when Frank told me that, I said, dude, you know what? Let me just run your advertising for six months for free. Uh, you've been good to me. I want to be good to you. And he said, I, I don't feel good about that. I don't feel right about that. And I'm not getting enough traction. It would be better for you and for everybody if you just stopped doing that uh, and, and made the space available to somebody else. So integrity on both sides, man. I mean, so if you are going to take some training this year, you know, really look at Frank's school as an opportunity. And remember, like he said before, you put together a big group and they'll come to you to do training. So he's one of the best in the industry. And uh, it, I think it's a very tough business to be in. And I've had a great relationship with Frank over the years. And uh, sad to see him go as a sponsor. But what I really hope for is that his business continues to grow. Anyway, with that, Let's get into uh, the main topic of today's show, which, of course, is your calls to or your questions for our audience. The first question I have is for Nick Ferguson, and it is about getting ground ready for the planting of the infamous southern grape that is the true native grape to our country, the muscadine. Mr. Ferguson, what say you about prepping the ground for the muscadine grape? Hey there, TSP listeners. Nick Ferguson again. Thank you, Jack, for including me on this awesome lineup and expert counsel. I've got a great question here. And Tina wants to know the best way to prepare a plot for growing muscadines when that area is currently just a lawn. So right now, it's just a big lawn, and she's wanting to prep the ground for muscadines. So the first thing I would do, Tina, would be to get some clear plastic and you want clear plastic because it is going to create a greenhouse effect and it is going to cook any of the grass and weeds and weed seeds underneath that plastic and I would lay that plastic out on the area that you're wanting to grow. You can get uh, greenhouse plastic as remnants. It's pretty cheap. It's smaller pieces, but you don't need a whole lot. You don't need a big piece. You just need, you know, a, a four foot wide strip of plastic to lay down. And what you do is you weight down, uh, you know, every four, ten feet or so and weight it down so it doesn't blow away. And what I do first off is I would make sure I watered it pretty well before I do this. And the reason why you want to water it is because that extra moisture is going to help kind of cook and steam the the area in there. It's not actually going to steam it, but it's going to help it get a lot hotter and it's going to help focus that energy from the sun and trap it 
under there and kill all that grass. And it should only take a couple weeks, maybe a month, to kill everything under there. It might even happen sooner than that. It might only take a week. But you can check it every once in a while. Just pull up the plastic on a corner and kind of pull the grass. And if it pulls out really good, well, then it's all dead. So I'll cover a little bit of what you do, but I only have a few minutes to answer your question. And I dealt with this in episodes 25 and episode 1 of my podcast, and that's homegrownliberty.com. You can go there. You can find it on iTunes. But if you look up episode 25, and I talked about garden expansion, and I get into what has just kind of become the Ferguson gardening method. People call them Nick Beds. I, I don't know. Apparently, People love this method. It works really well for them. I've had quite a few people who have kind of struggled with gardening and struggled with soil prep and soil development for years and years, and they do this, and that year they have amazing soil for their garden. So what I would recommend would be go to episode 25 where I answer this question, not specifically for muscadines, but I give a fantastic answer for developing that soil that's relatively low energy. If you don't want to follow all the steps like putting it directly on contour, that's fine. Uh, if you have somewhat of a sloped backyard or yard then and you want to just grow them straight in a line, that's fine. Just prepare that ground straight in a line. And I kind of use a lasagna type method for developing my soil, and I do it with forest soil, leaf mold, that kind of material, manure, if you can get it. If you can't, don't worry about it. And if, especially if you cannot get manure, then you're going to want to get some kind of ground-up seed material. So whether that's flour from the store, or you go to a feed store and you get uh, I don't know, laying pellets or rabbit pellets, anything like that, anything that is ground up and has seed material in it. Alfalfa pellets work fine, but I'd prefer seed meal of some kind. You can get cottonseed meal, you can get corn meal, even just chopped up corn is fine. And the reason why you want that is because it is worm food. You're going to attract earthworms. And when you put this worm food down, you put a little bit of bone meal down. If you have very acidic soils, you might want to put a little bit of lime down. Not much, just a little bit, just to help balance out the, the calcium. And you'll put that bone meal, seed meal, what all did I cover? A little bit of manure and the forest soil for beneficial inoculants, uh, fungi, bacteria, and there will most likely be earthworm eggs and juvenile and adult earthworms in with that. And you put that all in there in layers and you cover it with mulch. And if you're having really dry weather, you can cover it with, you can water it well and cover it with black plastic. You are not going to cook the soil. You're not going to get it really hot. The black plastic will warm up what it is in direct contact with, it's not going to bake your soil like the clear plastic would. Don't put clear plastic back on it because you will bake it and the earthworms will not appreciate that environment. But you could put something like 
um, an opaque or white tarp over it to keep it nice and moist. And what we're looking to do here is after you've killed that lawn, you want to create an environment that is encouraging and conducive of growth and breeding of earthworms and other beneficial bacteria and fungi. So you want it moist, you want it cool, and you want it to have food for the worms. So if you do all that, and like I said, I go way more in depth into this in episode 25, and and I touch on this in episode one of my podcast, if you do that, you're going to end up with, after a few months, you're going to have some really nice soil. And if you're growing, if you're planting those muscadines in the fall just to get them kind of established, roots down, and put to bed for the winter, that is a, now is a perfect time to do that. I'm actually going to start doing this with some new garden beds that have never been gardened before. They were farmed maybe 60 years ago, but have been in forest. This is right near my house. I'm going to be doing these myself. This is the way I do it. This is the way I tell all of my friends, family, and clients to do it. So if you want the scoop on the site prep, the bed building, hit up episode 25 of the Homegrown Liberty podcast. I hope that helps you. I hope that answers your question. Everyone else, if you haven't checked out my podcast, that is where I answer lots of questions from from my listeners. So if you want to check out more about what I do, head over to my website, homegrownliberty.com. Oh, and I want to tell you that we are mixing up the podcast a little bit. I've got a new format that I think is going to be really fun, really interesting, and you kind of get to be a fly on the wall listening to some of my consultations. So if you're at all interested in that, then you might want to check out the podcast because that's what this week and next week and probably the following week are going to be. And we've got some really cool things coming. So keep that on your radar. And if you want to email me with a question or you have a follow-up question for this, email me, nick at homegrownliberty.com. Thanks, guys. I love these questions. Keep them coming. Do good things. Nick's a great guy, and I've loved seeing him get his own podcast up to speed. He's a, he's a great teacher. Uh, I'll tell you guys, one of the reasons that I have worked with Nick Ferguson as much as I've, I've been able to uh, in every opportunity that I've had since the very first time I met him um, is that the first time that I actually saw him at an event, one of my events, his, his desire to teach uh, from a true servant level is undeniable. I remember one night, about 1 o'clock in the morning, I pulled him away from the whiteboard. I put a beer in his hand. I said, we're here to have fun, too. Sit down. And he said, this is fun for me, and people want to learn. That's the kind of guy he is. So I'm blessed to have Nick as a, as a true friend in my life. Uh, next up, we have a question on the Unimog. It sounds scary, doesn't it? The Unimog. Coming soon to a theater near you, the Rise of the evil Unimog. Will it take over? You'll have to show up with your 3D glasses to see. I'm sorry, it's Friday. I'm in a good mood. Uh, and I just want to have a little bit of fun with you guys. But uh, the Unimog is not a monster. It does not appear on the silver screen. Uh, no, the Unimog is a vehicle. 
a vehicle used by the United States military. So who do you think will be answering this question for you? The awesome, the amazing Tim Glantz. Tim, how do we, how do we deal with the Unimog? Hey everybody, Tim Glantz here from the old Grouch's Military Surplus uh, with an expert panel question and answer for Heather asking about Unimogs. Um, and Heather asked, we're starting our homestead and I've been looking at tractors. My husband was Army EOD and he's absolutely in love with the Unimog. He says we should forget a normal tractor and get a Unimog with every attachment we can find. Uh, she's got about 43 acres in a creek. Uh, she's planning on doing some silva pasture on contour, fruit, nut, woodlot, uh, Rotationally put out some chicken tractors, feeder pigs, uh, and typical homestead stuff. Uh, her husband's contention is that the large landscape uh, they want to do with the swaling and putting in ponds are better off renting a really big tractor once or twice and then having the Swiss Army knife that is the Unimog as their primary workhorse. Um, her questions are how rare are the Unimogs, how hard is it to find parts and uh, maintenance for them, and how hard is it to find attachments that would work for what uh, they want to do. And what my thoughts on it. Well, Heather, uh, your husband is right and wrong. The Unimog, for those that don't know what it is, is an amazing truck made by Mercedes in Germany. Unimog is short for Universal Motor Garat. I think I pronounced that right. Uh, roughly translated, that means Universal Motor Machine. And, and they are. They're, if you can imagine truck-tractor hybrids designed from the ground up as agricultural vehicles... Um, So you've got really high ground clearance. You've got the, uh, the ability, if it's ordered from the factory with it, to have three-point hitches, sometimes both front and rear, uh, so they can run implements with a PTO just like a regular tractor. There's also backhoe mounts, uh, front loader mounts, snow blower mounts, which is really common use in the U.S. for them. Uh, and since it's made in a pickup truck configuration, you can't have a dump bed. And all that together, you can still take it down uh, into town on the road at, uh, you know, 50, 55 miles an hour. The amount of versatility you get in one of these, in one package, is, is amazing. And it would be a really solid choice for any homesteader or farmer in your position if your budget allows. As long as your homestead is in Germany, Austria, France, Switzerland, or one other EU country. In the U.S., not nearly as much. Here's why. They're not sustainable, in my opinion, as a working vehicle in the U.S. For several reasons. Uh, we'll start with uh, how they get into the U.S. There are three ways Unimogs came into the U.S. market. Some were imported and sold brand new as heavy equipment, farm vehicles, and the such. Uh, most of them by case. Uh, they started in the 70s, went through the 90s. I haven't seen anything later than that. Uh, then there are surplus Unimogs uh, that the U.S. Army had. They're the model 416. They were used, uh, they were all purchased in the 80s for what was known as the C-Truck. C-Truck stood for Small Emplacement Excavator. And what they did is they wanted a backhoe that they didn't have to haul around on a trailer. They can move around the battlefield rapidly. So Freightliner bought the Unimogs from Germany and brought them over from Germany. They bought a backhoe attachment from Case, put it on the back. They bought a front bucket from Schmidt, put it on the front, and then they sold it to the government. So technically in the government's eyes, it was a Freightliner because it had to be an American company selling it. Those are now getting surplused out and sold. Uh, 
because they've li- outlived their usefulness for the government. Most of them are, you know, pretty worn out. Although you can find some the government rebuilt, uh, and they don't fit what the government's current doctrine. Uh, the army current doctrine is they want every vehicle to be able to take an add-on armor kit if needed, and these can't do it. So they're be they're they're past their life cycle. They're being replaced. And then the last thing you've got is importers, specialty dealers. Uh, these are also the guys you'll have to go to for parts who go over to Europe and buy Unimogs when they get good deals on them, put them in containers, bring them over here and sell them. Now on those, you're going to look at uh, importation laws that restrict them to pretty much only bringing stuff in that's 25 years old or older. So you'll have some of the older surplus Swiss ones that a bunch of those came back in about 10 to 20 years ago, the Model 404s. You'll have other military surplus ones. Then especially out of Germany and Austria, you'll have uh, commercial surplus ones where they were used in agriculture or industrial uses, and then these guys bought them up and shipped them over. So the first thing you have to look at here is any vehicle on the Unimog market you're going to buy in the USA is going to be a used vehicle at least 25 years old. So used and used heavily, because these things were made to be used heavy. I mean, sure, you might find a cream puff that somebody... Some business had or something like that or, you know, didn't get used for 25 years. But even that comes with its issues where age can take a toll on a vehicle even if it's not used. Uh, so you're going to have a vehicle that is going to break more often than a newer tractor. And uh, that is an issue. Uh, looking at price ranges uh, for the ones with the three-point hitches, which is important because you can't just go add one to a lot of them. You're looking typically 25,000 without any attachments at the bottom of the market, but most are running 30 to 35. Uh, you might do well to uh, catch one at between 25 and 30 and then get some attachments and come out at about 35,000 with all the attachments you need. Uh, parts. You can get parts sometimes. Sometimes you can go down to Napa and that seal you need or that bearing or that other little small part, either it'll be something that was used in something else and if you know how to cross the parts number or you find that rare example of a parts counter worker who still actually knows how to look at parts and doesn't just stare at what a computer tells him, or you, some parts you can find that were common with the, uh, the older Mercedes sedans if you get a gas one or some of the diesel engine parts. But a lot of the parts you're not going to buy at your local dealer. You might get some of them at a case dealer still, uh, but that's getting rarer and rarer because they're, they haven't brought these vehicles in in a long time, so supporting them is not on their agenda, which leaves you with buying these parts through the specialty importers. There's not a lot of them around the country. Odds are you don't live close to one. So that means two things. Number one, you're going to pay more for parts than you would for a typical tractor for two reasons. Uh, first, because it's a Mercedes, and, uh, you know, Mercedes is like Cat uh, or Motorola uh, on the two-way front. You, you might find a better product, but you won't pay more for it should be their motto. Uh, and two, you know, these, like I said, specialty importers bringing them in. There's very little competition and they're having to do a lot of legwork and a lot of work to even get these parts in the country. Then you have to look at, if you break that, you have to call around and find somebody that's got the part, then you have to wait for it to get to you. 
So anything that breaks, what on a minor tractor would be, hey, let's run down to the Ford tractor dealer or Kubota dealer or the John Deere dealer and get my part. If They probably have it in stock. If they don't, it'll be here next day. Instead, it turns into, at best, I'll have my part in two days and pay more for it. It may be a week or two. And if it's some weird part that they just don't happen to have, I might have to get that out of Germany. And it's either going to cost me a lot or I'm going to have to wait a long time. So for comparison, I just went to the Kubota website. They've got a little build-your-own tractor deal. For 35000 which is about where I'd estimate you'd be in a 25- to 30-year-old Unimog with the attachments. Uh, and I, when I say attachments, I'm not even talking like a backhoe and a front loader. I'm just talking your three-point hitch pieces, uh, like your uh, bush hog and your plows and stuff like that. But I went to the Kubota website, and for 35000 you can buy a brand-new 33-horse tractor with with the loader and the backhoe and all those attachments you'd need. And it would be under warranty, brand new, with a local dealer who stocks the parts and who wants to keep you happy. Uh, so he's going to get parts if you need them because he wants you to buy your next tractor from him too. And that's list price. You can probably even do them better going in. So sit down and weigh that out. Reliable, brand new, under warranty, not quite as cool or unusual, or old, Pretty well worn out, hard to get parts for, harder to fix, uh, but really cool and unusual. Which really makes more economic sense and practical sense on your homestead. Uh, the only thing you lose with the new tractor, or even a slightly used tractor over the Unimog, is the ability to take it down the road at higher speeds. So unless that is critical to you, I don't see the advantage. The other thing you lose is the cool factor. Uh, and Unimogs are cool. I own one. I had an old surplus 44, uh, model 404. It was a 1962 Swiss Army. Uh, and I can tell you from experience that when Mercedes says they have lifetime unlimited roadside assistance, they will bring you five gallons of gas when you run your 1962 surplus Unimog out of fuel because you're an idiot. And they're done that. Uh, but, you know, they're cool. If he really, really, really wants a Unimog, uh, what I'd suggest on the compromise is go buy a used Kubota, Ford, or John Deere tractor with some fairly low hours and all the implements you need, and you can get that around $20,000. And then he can buy a surplus Unimog 404 uh, for around ten dollars to $12,000 for a toy that can also be used as a farm truck. Uh, and then you're not putting all your eggs in one basket, and he's still got a Unimog to play with, and your homestead has a much more reliable tool to use. Uh, as for brands of tractor, you know, any of the big name brands are good. My number one advice for people on stuff like tractors and chainsaws is take any of the top brands, then look around at your close local dealers and see who has the best reputation for stocking parts and supporting you and all that. Don't let brand loyalty saying, well, I need to have a deer or a Ford or Kubota get in your way if, you know, the closest deer dealer is 10 minutes from your homestead and the closest Kubota dealer is an hour and a half and the deer dealer's got a great reputation for customer service, make that connection, network locally, and let them help you keep your stuff going and on the farm. Uh, it makes a big difference because you have to look at this as a total logistics package. So I hope that helps and I hope that puts the whole Unimog versus tractor thing in perspective. They're cool. They're neat. On paper, they sound good. Uh, but when you look at the practical applications here in the U.S., uh, 
the downsides just don't outweigh the benefits, especially in something like homesteading or farming where downtime on your equipment can mean lost money or lost crops. That's important. Reliability is important in that regard. Hope that helps, and uh, if you need any more uh, uh, guidance on it, feel free to look me up. You can catch me. Uh, email and information is uh, on my website at oldgrouch.com. And if your husband still isn't convinced, uh, have him call me. You know, I, I, I'm a retired Army warrant officer who spent a lot of time working on these things. Uh, he, he, I'll, I'll be able to talk him out of it, I think. Although EOD guys sometimes get a little stuck in their ways. Uh, so, uh, yeah, hope that helps, and hope that helps everybody who was even wondering what in the world a Unimog is. And thanks for the question, and as always, Jack, thanks for the great show. Well, um, even though I was a United States Army mechanic, I learned a lot here because I didn't know anything about these things. Um, I spent the majority of my service in Panama and Honduras. Uh, I served both with airborne, uh, with three different styles of units uh, with different deployments, uh, aviation, airborne, and um, combat engineers. And the Honduras tour was six months with uh, detached to an engineering unit and never saw one of these things there. Um, scrapers. Uh, vibe rollers, uh, cranes, uh, 10-ton uh, truck tractors, uh, basically 917s, which is like a uh, modern semi, uh, deuce and a half, five tons, uh, you just name it, front-end loaders, just variable reach forklifts, but I, I never saw or ever put my hands on one of these. And it sounds like uh, they're a great vehicle, but they may not be practical for the application. And uh, looking at them, I'm like, if I had a really big deer lease, uh, that I wanted something to run around on and be able to do a lot of things. It might really be a cool thing for it. But I agree with Tim. When you're looking for what a tractor will do, the tool you want is a, a tractor. With that, next question I have is also, you know, figuring out what to use for the right application. Chef Keith Snow. We have a listener who uh, has some really nice cast iron, but his wife hates it because it's heavy and wants to know, how do I get good quality, lightweight cookware that everything doesn't stick to on me? Keith, what say you on this? Hey, Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. Wanted to answer Chris's question about cookware. Um, a lot of people love cast iron cookware, like myself. I love enameled cast iron, regular cast iron. I also have um, just a ton of French cookware um, that's copper, but very, very heavy with super heavy handles. I mean, these things... Um, not even that big, but very, very dense and just heavy. And, and a lot of women don't like handling such heavy things, so they tend to want to get cheaper cookware. Now, um, here's what I would suggest. If you are looking for an alternative to cast iron, um, the first place I would look is Lodge, L-O-D-G-E, company out of Tennessee. And they have a line of pans that are steel. And these are seasoned when you get them. About a 12-inch pan can be had from Amazon. I think it's about $28, $29. If you're prime, that would be delivered price. <clears throat> um, you can also go to places like Sportsman's Warehouse and Cabela's, and they usually will carry in their little you know, camping, cooking-type section. They'll carry some of these Lodge. I think they call them Lodge Logic, and they're steel. They're much lighter than cast iron. 
but they work really well. They heat very evenly. They hold the heat. And I spent a few decades in the restaurant business, and we would always have a few of these um, well-seasoned steel pans. I don't think they were made by Lodge. Maybe they were. Um, but the point is, these things were our go-to pan when we needed to get a good sear like searing a duck breast or maybe uh, you know a halibut fillet, whatever, something we wanted, a nice, good sear, we would use that instead of the aluminum pans that we did most of our saute work in. So these these um, seasoned steel pans are, are an excellent choice. Um, aside from that, recently I've been doing a lot of, I'll call it loose research, into non-stick cookware. Um, I'll be honest, most non-stick cookware, uh, the, the, the kind that you see that's got that gray coating, you know, the DuPont, Teflons, and any number of pans, uh, those things sort of frighten me. And I, at one point, when I used to shoot a TV show, I had a sponsor, um, and they had a big line of this non-stick, and they would send it to us, and, and it, it would get beaten up pretty quickly. And if you really heated it up, like on a gas... Um, range and when we were shooting TV shows, a lot of times pans would have to be preheated that way. When you're filming, you can't sit there and wait for the pan to preheat, and you want to put something down and have it sauté right away. This kind of thing, um, they'd be preheated, and man, the smell in the kitchen—it scared me. It just wasn't—you could tell you're poisoning yourself to death. So, I haven't really been using those, and I've looked all around, and I've been testing lots and lots of nonstick pans. And a lot of them are light, and that's a good thing. And usually when you get something light, the trade-off is they're not going to heat up very quickly, and they're also not going to hold the heat very quick. But there are some exceptions. Now, there's a, a company from Scandinavia, and oddly enough, they're called ScanPan. And they've got um, a natural coating. It's not It's PFOA-free which is the the nasty stuff, and those work pretty well. Now, they call it a nonstick pan, and, and it is pretty nonstick, but it's not... It's not great. It's it's just good. Then I've tried some of the um, ceramic pans, and those are, are pretty nonstick, but they're piles of crap. And I haven't had any luck with any of them. They don't last. They're very, very fragile, and stuff sticks to them. In particular, I'll, there's, a, there's a brand, Green something. Maybe it was Green Pan. I don't know. Shh. But in my opinion, um, pile of crap, I tested a few of them and I just told my wife, you know, find somebody to give them to or throw them out because they're not nonstick and they chip up really easy. So um, as I continued to search, I came across uh, stoneware pans from Europe and I've got an Italian, I've got two of these pans from Italy. The, the brand is Moneta, M-O-N-E-T-A. And honestly, my wife dragged me kicking and screaming into TJ Maxx one day and honestly, the only reason I agreed to go is whenever, not whenever, but when she goes shopping with my daughters in the big city, I often will find a way to accompany them just because I'm a bit of a paranoid dad and I want to make sure my my kids are, are and my wife are safe. Um, while I was in there, TJ Maxx, in the back, they had a bunch of these stoneware pans from Moneta. And I had researched them and uh, they work excellent, I got to tell you. 
I've got two of them now. They are the most nonstick. And the way they make them, it's a stone coating, and it's totally nonstick, and it doesn't have the nasty chemicals. They seem to be pretty durable. And I've tested um, some of these other pans next to this stone pan, and there is no contest, none at all. I mean, they're just totally nonstick. There's also a brand um, that I'm going to try, and I've read and heard some really good things. They come out of Germany. And uh, it's called Stone Line Extreme. And there'll be a link that I'll provide Jack in the show, show notes where you can um, jump onto Amazon. And it's not an affiliate link. It's just a link that I just researched a few minutes ago. And they're cool. The handles come off. And they have that, again, that stone lining in there. And these seem to be well-built. They're a little thicker than um, the Italian ones. So I would recommend trying some of those. And they're not terribly expensive. They're not dirt cheap. But you can get an excellent one, you know, a large one for, I don't know, 75 to $80. And when you're talking about cookware, I mean, that's a bargain, and this is definitely an investment. You don't want cheap, flimsy stuff from Walmart. Anything made in China you don't want. And you certainly don't want, if you see, and you will, you see this stuff on TV, my mom will call me, are these pans any good? And she's a little older, and it's that copper stuff that you see. 1995. If you call within five minutes, we'll throw an extra pan in, plus you know a, a ticket to a movie. But you got to call within the next five minutes. Steer clear of any of that stuff. And and a lot of those um, non-stick pans, all of them that you see on TV, yeah, they look they look non-stick. I mean, they they burn. I don't know, hard candy in it, it comes right off. But these things are just flimsy, they're cheap, and you know you can do a lot of trickery on television. You don't want that. So try to buy uh, either the German or the Italian one. Um, I'd definitely look into some of that seasoned steel, and that would uh, hook you up, Chris. So I hope this helps, and uh, I want to thank everybody for supporting Harvest Eating and their survival podcast. I'm out. And uh, I do have those uh, links in the show notes. The Lodge Logic Pan, in particular, um, there is a lot of variance on the prices on them. Uh, there's one that has a nice little cover on the handle. It's not that much different than the inexpensive one, uh, but it's not got a metal handle, so it won't get hot. And it's 76 bucks, and I don't recommend that you buy that one. I recommend that you uh, you learn how to not burn yourself with the handle of your pan and buy the Lodge CRS-12 if you're going to buy one of those. Uh, they make it in a 12, a 10, and an 8-inch, and the smaller pans actually cost more money. Why? Because they sell less of them. That's why. Because anything I can do with an 8-inch pan, I can do with a 12-inch pan, but not everything that I can do with a 12-inch pan can I do with an 8-inch pan. And the CRS-12, instead of 80 bucks, is 28 bucks on Prime with free shipping, Link in the show notes. Uh, they do have one that costs some money that it is really a cool skillet, though. Um, you can just look at look for it while you're on Google looking at, or I'm on Amazon looking at the CRS-12. It's the CRS-15. As you might imagine, it's 15 inches. It is, however, a two-handled, like the kind of pan that you would, you know, take and put into an oven that you have two handles with instead of one long handle for more stability when you move it around. And uh, there's a CRS GR18, and that is a, uh, a steel griddle. I, I like those pans a lot when you're cooking at high temperature and high heat. I agree with Keith on that. I will tell you that cheap, plain old Teflon 
nonstick pans do have one really great purpose, making omelets. Um, if you make an omelet right, you mix your egg up. You don't beat the hell out of it. You mix it gently so that it's incorporated, but you don't put a bunch of air in it. You heat your pan uh, to a very moderate heat where when you put butter on it, the butter kind of, you know, it dances a little bit but doesn't smoke. You're at a low heat temperature for the pan, and you do not end up with a big problem, and you don't end up with any kind of toxic reactions or anything. Those Teflon pans are fine when they're used at the right temperatures. For high heat searing and things like that, that's where all things kind of go to hell with them, uh, and you're better off with a steel thing. But when I'm making, let's say, a bunch of omelets for a bunch of people, those cheapo pans are really, if you keep your temperatures right, pretty dadgone good for the purpose. Okay, the next one that we have today is for Darby Simpson, and it's about grass height and pastured poultry. How high is too high for your chickens when you're tractoring them around to either fatten them up or keeping them pumping out those eggs? Hello there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. Uh, this week I had a, a question from David. He lives in Zone 5A. Um, and uh, he is wanting to know how tall is a too tall for pasture grasses that he uh, would be placing some pastured chickens out on in, in tractors. Um, so some details. He's got about three acres that he's been letting the grass grow up for a couple of months to save on mowing time and fuel expense, which I totally understand. And currently the grasses are about 40 inch tall in some areas, uh, but the majority of it is anywhere from 10 to 30 inches tall. So. Really, David's main question is he wants to know if he needs to mow in front of the uh, chicken tractor before moving it through an area. And if he does need to mow, how short does it need to be? Um, he's wondering, you know, if he had a neighbor come in and he paid him to bush hog it down to about 10 inches tall, would that be enough? Or should he use his own 60 inch wide mower uh, to get it down even even shorter? So. Uh, David, I tell you, if you're running birds, particularly this time of year where it's July and August and it's hot, anything over six, eight inches with these Cornish cross birds, you're really playing with fire, man. Um, I would encourage you to take your personal lawnmower out there and get that grass down to, you know, probably four to six inches tall, uh, so that it's not too tall for the birds. They can actually get really, really hot in tall grass, particularly this time of year, and you can see them suffocate, um, particularly if you have a waterer that clogs up and doesn't work for just a few hours. It, you know, this is one of those things. Ask me how I know. Uh, if you have a 90 or 95 degree day and you've got some taller grass and the waterer is working in the morning, and you go back there to check on them of an evening, and it stops working for three, four, five hours, you can have a mess on your hands. I actually had that occur two or three years ago, uh, and the waterer, I know it, it was it was working at like 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I went back to check on them again about 8.30 at night, and it had stopped, and I had like 18 dead chickens on a 95-degree day that were really close to maturity, really close to uh, – being hauled off to the butcher and that's a very disheartening thing it's also a very expensive thing so um i guess first lesson there is it's always better to have two waters two is one one is none but having short grass 
uh, to keep them from suffocating on a hot day is your best bet. Uh, something else too, obviously the shorter the grass, the easier it's going to be, uh, to move your chicken pens through there. So, uh, you know, the, typically these chicken tractors can be kind of heavy, kind of bulky, a little bit tough to, uh, uh, you know, move around. You mentioned in your email that you're going to make yours about nine feet wide or so. Um, you know, it, it's typically not real light. And if you've got really thick, heavy grass, it makes it that much more difficult, uh, for the, the, to get the t- chicken tractors from, from point A to point B. Um, also you, you mentioned you've got a lot of species of stuff out there and that you've got some red and white clover. Um, and you may also have some alfalfa out there. Keeping your grasses shorter is going to help those legumes grow better. Uh, they can't really compete very well with really tall grasses. So if you kind of keep stuff under control and you, you, you get some organic matter down on the ground, kind of simulating some mob grazing with cattle, uh, that clover, so long as you have good moisture, that clover will pop right back up through that mat. And I tell you what, man, chickens... Even Cornish cross birds just can't resist mowing down on fresh, young, tender clover and alfalfa. And it's a really great protein source for them. And I personally, I think it adds a lot to the flavor. Uh, so that's another reason to keep your grass short. But yeah, definitely 10 inches is not tall enough. And, and bush hogging, you, you might need to have a neighbor or somebody bush hog it so that it's manageable. Uh, for the time being, uh, you know, wherever you're going to run your chicken tractors, but you're going to want to go back over that with your personal lawnmower and get it down into that four to six inch range, uh, so that it's, you know, again, not too tall, so they won't suffocate and it's easier to move the tractors through. So David, I hope that answers your question. Uh, if you've got any further questions, please feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, you can contact me through my website at darbysimpson.com and I'll be happy to help you out. Uh, for the rest of you who would like to learn more about me and what I do, again, head out to DarbySimpson.com. There's a bunch of free blog articles out there that you can uh, read up on and learn all about producing your own uh, pasture-based meats, including poultry, pork, and beef. Uh, and also, if you'd like to learn more, uh, I've been doing a, a podcast on Permaculture Voices this year called Grass-Fed Life with Diego Footer. There are like 14 uh, one hour long episodes out there that you can listen to on all kinds of stuff. We get into really deep details on a lot of these subject matters, a lot of nuts and bolts, uh, stuff on how to, a lot of stuff on marketing, some philosophical discussions. Had a lot of fun doing the podcast, a lot of information out there. Go and check that out. And then lastly, if you want to go deeper, I do offer one on one consulting. And if you're a uh, TSP MSB member, you do get a 10% discount on those consulting services. Again, you can find that at DarbySimpson.com. As always, thanks for sending in the questions, guys. Everyone have a wonderful weekend and take care. Good stuff from the man himself, Mr. Darby Simpson. Uh, next question I have for you guys is for Michael and Sue Laprise of HelloBySue.com. Uh, on homeschool curriculum, setting up a curriculum as a new homeschool family, it can seem overwhelming. So, Mike and Sue, what say you? Hi, Jack, and greetings from South Texas to the TSP community. This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live. For the expert counsel, here's today's question from Pat. 
what are some of the specific things we should be looking at when picking a curriculum? With just starting out, there is so much information out there that it is a little overwhelming. Any advice would be great. Well, Pat, I hope it's true that this advice is great for you and your wife as you begin this adventure. Pat is a paramedic and teaches at the local community college, and his wife runs an in-home daycare and has her master's in elementary ed. Their children will be going into the second grade and preschool this next school year. For anyone considering homeschooling that happens to be home with their kids this summer, get started now, especially if your kids say they don't want to go to school. Remember the thing that keeps most people from sticking to homeschooling isn't curriculum or even the cost of that. It's the day-to-day things like budgeting, money, and time, or getting their personal problems under control. We recommend that families beginning a home-based learning adventure start with their daily chores, address any behavior issues that either you or your child have, adjust your budget, and as Jack was talking about in episode 1817, get your food plan under control so you can save money. Next, as a family, set up your rules of engagement. Make a list of behaviors that your family doesn't like, then list a logical consequence for each bad behavior. If you spill your milk... A logical consequence isn't to say, you'll never drink milk again. Might be no milk for that meal. Let your kids help with the list and make sure each consequence is age appropriate. Next, we advise people to divorce their education paradigm from the central planning construct. Children weren't meant to sit in chairs and on buses for hours and hours each day. They weren't designed to stress out over testing that has way more to do with the adults in the system than it does the individual child. Government school is not for your child. They are for controlling society. You'll also need to decide what your goals are for a home-based learning adventure. Does your child need a break from government school? Will you feel the need to keep up with the cousins or neighbors, or do you want to enjoy the learning journey with your children? When we began homeschooling, we had a lot of raised eyebrows, but the first really negative response came from a 22-year-old reading specialist on her first government elementary school job. When she found out we homeschooled, she said that homeschool moms just don't do their job. She had eight kids in her reading program that were homeschooled and couldn't read. Their moms must just be lazy, was her conclusion. So, of course, I asked how many kids were in her reading program. She was happy to tell me that she was in charge of 100 kids from third to fifth grade. She wasn't so happy when I asked her who was lazy and failed to teach the other 92 non-homeschooled kids to read. It's part of the false narrative that all kids learn to read in first grade, and if they haven't by third grade, they get to do third grade again. In a third grade classroom of 25 kids, you're going to have kids that can't read, and probably one who's reading at the college level. Learning is not a race. There isn't a magical curriculum, age, or test that will make your child read or do anything at a specific time. It's interesting that math and reading are the two subjects a person needs in order to be an independent learner, and these are things that occur in everyday life. If we'll just open our eyes to the conversation we can have with our children about the life around them. So we recommend that you start by developing learning patterns within your family that occur naturally. Real money is great to have around for teaching. A handful of change while waiting at a restaurant or in line is fun and a teaching experience. My granddaughter's learning how to just count how many pieces there are in her pile, and my eight and nine year old race to see who can figure out the value of their pile. With an iPhone, I have books loaded from Ocean House Media that the kids can listen to, read along with, or read themselves. These are just a part of everyday living, 
And with help from your family, you guys can come up with some learning patterns that are always available and are easily adjustable for various skill levels. With seven kids, it's very, really important to develop those patterns that lead to personal responsibility and getting things done. As our parents would have said, decently and in order. In permaculture, the function stacking term of getting many yields or outputs from one element in your system can be really helpful for parenting too. We want our kids to read. We surround them with opportunities to read and limit electronic time. We want them to gain number literacy so it becomes part of our everyday conversation. Remember, instead of answering all your kids' questions quickly, you're going to start learning to ask questions back so they learn to think. We don't just plant a garden. We use all the teaching opportunities we can from preparing the soil to harvesting food. That's a lot of math and reading. Once you've developed your family patterns and are ready to add in curriculum, we, we recommend you find an older family that homeschools that reflects the values and interests that you have. If you're a sports competition-driven family, our recommendations may not fit. That family will want something like classical conversations, which is intense and com competition-driven learning. We're pretty laid back. Love to be at home, have friends over, and go camping. We love to learn and do it ourselves as much as possible, from prep to building our home, which has always also allowed us to save money, so Sue could be the home-based person for our family. We recommend that you choose materials that are designed by homeschoolers, written with parents in mind. A parent's time can get consumed by learning a curriculum, and then you're not spending time with your own kids. Next, we want hands-on for all ages. For younger kids, this would include crafts, and for older kids, discussion or experiments with friends. We also recommend that you begin one subject at a time. Which subject do you find easiest as the parent? Start with that, learn how to use it with your kids for about a month as you're strengthening your daily routine, and this gives you time to understand the curriculum and make adjustments. We use a program called Math UC for its simplicity and ease of use for all ages. We do math every weekday almost all year long because studies have shown that taking long breaks from learning for younger kids means a lot of relearning time. Remember, we're trying to develop healthy patterns and learning is one of those. Matthew C., every five lessons or so, there's a video for the kids to watch. When they're younger, Sue watches with them and sits with them for math, but once they have the routine down, they can manage math on their own, except for grading. During math time, once they finish their worksheets, we have a variety of math toolboxes that they can choose from that are fun and interesting. They think they're playing, which makes math super fun thing instead of drudgery. We can't say this enough. Once you pick a math curriculum, stick with it. Learn how to use it better and add interesting hands-on elements into your math time. Kids are going to complain about math, and it's not the curriculum. It's about understanding the process better and teaching them not to complain. Remember, every time you change a curriculum, it's going to cost you both time and money, and I can guarantee they'll still complain. We're recommending starting with math because over the years, that's the one place that homeschoolers seem to feel behind on. There's also the how are you going to teach your kids calculus question that you'll hear as your kids get older. Just trust me that you're teaching your kids how to think and learn, and if they need calculus or physics, They'll figure it out if you've taught them to be responsible for their own life. Next, we suggest you add writing. I don't know about you, but I was frustrated by writing in high school and college because my grades seemed tied more to the teacher's worldview than my ability to write. 
and when our oldest was 11, I went to my first homeschool conference in Houston and sat in on Andrew Pudawa's Institute for Excellence in Writing course. It reminded me of the games Othello and Chess, where it took just 30 minutes to understand the basic patterns, but it would take a lifetime to master. For the past 18 years, this has been our main writing program. I do throw in some other things now and then for co-op, like newspaper writing. Yes, I said writing over reading. We're guessing if you're listening to Jack, raising a thinker is one of your goals as a parent, and learning to think more clearly yourself is probably a goal you have. Reading is about discovering information, and it's important, but we often shortchange a kid who can't decode letters into words at the appropriate government level with being stupid or behind. Writing is about evaluating information and learning to think more clearly. Writing is not about penmanship, so be sure you separate those in your own mind and let your child's writing be about their thinking process. Boys in general struggle early on with fine motor skills, so we found flashcards to be much more helpful in writing sentences at an early age for them. Your child can also dictate their ideas to you or use a voice to text and let them listen to their ideas. Every few years, I pull out my IEW teaching DVDs and actually go through the lessons and write. It reminds me that what I'm asking my kids to do is not easy, and it shows them that I'm willing to put in the effort to learn with them. This actually goes for every subject. Make sure you're learning with your kids or participating in the process with a discussion rather than a lecture. Early on in our homeschool journey, about 18 years ago, we started using both IEW and Matthew C. Sue was confident with the writing, so that never changed, but being less confident with the math, we dropped Matthew C. and jumped around for about eight years until we adopted our youngest three. At that point, being older and wiser, we realized that starting over with a two-year-old, we wanted to be better on the financial end of our homeschooling by sticking to what we knew worked best for our family. It's about $150 for one year of math curriculum per kid for the student, teacher, test, and manipulatives. If you're only buying that once and every kid in your house is using that same thing, in 12 years, you aren't buying math anymore. Science is another area I'm not super confident in past 8th grade, but I've always found a friend who's good at that to share teaching with. However, with the amazing video choices online, there really isn't anything your kid can't learn about fairly easy with little to no cost. None of my kids have been super sciencey except for my computer geek, and he figured it out on his own. You don't have to know everything or have a curriculum for everything. Teaching your kids how to learn is your job, and then you can find their passion. Science curriculum is actually my least favorite thing because, as my friend Missy pointed out, it's shallow. The only information you get is what will fit in the chapter and can go on a test. Except currently, we're using Matt Power's Permaculture Student Course, which has a simple textbook, lots of videos, but more importantly, a deep sense of learning because we're out in the garden. There isn't a test, so I guess the results of our garden is the test. This particular curriculum with a real-life hands-on application that produces results has been super fun. Last, we have Tapestry of Grace, written by a homeschool mom of six, Marsha Somerville, which is a comprehensive history, literature, geography, worldviews, art, and even writing curriculum that is set up as a four-year journey through history that you cycle through. Its grade level is kindergarten to dad, truly written for the whole family. Marsha is a Christian, and we have a number of friends who are very committed to a certain brand of Christianity 
that are offended by this program because it calls into question the history of their favorite branch of Christianity and it has kids ask questions about basic tenets of various faiths throughout history and encourages the reading of various religious texts. Shocking, I know, but it's one of the things we really love about this program. If you want to understand why Muslims are doing what they're doing today, it's much easier when you know the story behind the religion and have read the text. This curriculum is also easy to adjust. Adding things that interest your kids or removing things that don't. Kids also love coming back around to a time period in history that they think they know about, only to discover that it goes so much deeper. Then there are so many other interesting subjects that you can buy curriculum for. You can get really creative or spend lots of money, but be sure you're choosing things that are simple to start with, but go deeper as you and your kids begin to learn together. I don't think we've mentioned this, but we don't buy into program that doesn't cover all age levels. We had a great K-8 history program early on, but when our first kid moved into the ninth grade, we moved to Tapestry, which was brand new at the time. There was a huge time commitment for Sue when she's investigating a new curriculum, and then about two to three years to find her stride in implementing that curriculum. So switching takes not only a financial toll, but also a time and stress toll. Your kids know when you don't know what you're doing, and they love to take advantage and try to get out of work by pretending like they didn't understand or wasn't explained clearly. That never happens now because everyone knows the process. They know what part has to get done and which parts they have freedom to choose how they accomplish the goal. In thinking toward a more sustainable home-based learning process, we feel it's really important to, one, stack the functions where you're getting many real-life learning yields out of a curriculum, two, Pick and stick with the curriculum you choose to save time and money. Then three, dig deeper into what you're learning about as a family. For some of you, curriculum choices can depend on your state's rules. Some states have much stronger guidelines, and to avoid conflict, you'll need to comply and have the state check in on you or take the test they request. Again, always check in with your state homeschool association for the latest rules. If you're in Texas, where a bona fide curriculum is required... That includes one you make up yourself. Awesome. To all you TSP listeners out there that are just beginning your homeschool learning adventure and would like more help, please let us know at halobysue.com or halobysue on Facebook. There are many variables to determine the right curriculum for your family, and we can help you ask the right questions. Thanks again, Jack and TSP community. And remember what Jack says, tax is theft. Every time a penny leaves your pocket and the government gets a penny of your money, you give them ammunition to infringe on your rights. Government school is a weapon used against liberty and freedom. I was I was both surprised and empowered and very, very pleased by that little sign-off there by Michael. Um, indeed, government schools. And please remember to keep telling your friends and family, oh, you mean government school. Don't do it all hostile. Don't necessarily be as, as heavy-handed as Michael was there because you're not speaking to the initiated. But just start out, oh, don't you mean the government school? And when they're like, what do you mean government school? Well, don't isn't it paid for with government money and run by the government with government rules and government regulations and staffed by government employees? And it, it is it, the agenda and the, and the profile set by the government? Isn't that what it is? And then just let it be. It's it's an interesting thing when people start hearing it that way because it makes them start to question the marketing behind, oh, schools are just wonderful, benevolent places. Yeah, 
Yeah, but if you tell them they're evil, malevolent places, they won't believe you because they're not 100% evil, malevolent places. They are a hodgepodge of good, bad, and totally evil all in one place. But we got to start getting people thinking about this and start asking the question, is there a better way to do this? There is. Greg Yowes and I even wrote a song about that. You hear it at the beginning of every show. Uh, final question today is for Jeff Lawton and has to do with layers within aquatic systems and using them for food production. Jeff, take it away, man. Hey, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia on a, a nice winter's morning. And uh, my first question is from Keith. And it's about uh, aquatic environments. And... Um, As there is, um, are there layers to the aquatic environment as there is with a soil-based environment? Yeah, there sure is, uh, Keith. Um, we could start off at the, at the surface, if you like, uh, of water, but we really have to go up to the edge uh, because the edge of water is a, has an anaerobic soil layer um, where the saturation going into the soil around Uh, an aquatic system is different from the aerobic soil. So there's an outer edge to that where the aerobic soil meets the saturation point of the anaerobic soil. And that may, that may vary back and forwards a little bit with dry times and wet times. In fact, it will. Um, so you have a moving outer fringe edge between the anaerobic and aerobic and a different set of plant layers there. And then you come down to the edge side plants in that anaerobic layer and to the edge of the water where it's obviously most anaerobic. And then you come into the layer of um, emergent plants and there's a lot of habitat there for aquatic organisms, particularly um, pupating organisms and organisms going through their ju juvenile states. Um, and that's down to about two foot deep or um, 60 centimeters, as we say in the metric, um, of water and then down to uh, a rich um, underwater anaerobic soil layer. Of course, a lot of people don't realize that uh, shallow lakes and ponds create more soil, uh, create soil faster than forests, and the only one that's faster than that is the, uh, the fastest soil-creating ecosystem on Earth, and that's the shallow marine um, ecosystem. So uh, shallow marine is the highest in the... Uh, soil creation mechanisms in nature, the, the hierarchy of soil creation, and then shallow lakes and ponds, and then forests, and then prairies, and then uh, our poor effort comes last, but we can do it, and that's the human gardening design mind intention that we have, hopefully, um, or should have, or maybe it's our next evolution of humanity um, to all have. But then let's go on with our water. Um, so from the two f feet deep layer... 60 centimeters we have these incredibly productive plants we have our wild rice in america and the arisa rice of, of famous rice of asia and we have our taros and um, water chestnuts and and um, some of the most productive uh, plants in the world typhus is the most productive by weight of any forage plant in the world from its roots and um <coughs> kang kong ipomoea aquatica uh, i i 
Ipomoea being the um, sweet potato genus, is the aquatic sweet potato. Ipomoea aquatica is the fastest growing leaf crop in the world. And the fastest and the uh, most productive uh, food crop by weight in the world is Chinese water chestnut. So um, it's, uh, it's a very productive layer, that one. And then we go on down to the deeper layer, and there you get uh, plants that are anchored on the bottom, but they're, um, they come right up to the surface, and um, you get all your uh, um, nymphoidia lilies um, coming up to the surface, and many, many varieties of lilies. And, of course, you have the lotus, which is itself a, a, a root crop. Um, so you have plants that are anchored that come up. And then you have uh, your floating plants, um, and a lot of those are incredibly um, um, worrying weeds for a lot of people, but they're incredible filters and make amazing compost because they, uh, they're like a lot of plants. They, they harvest the nutrient in water. There's a lot of suspended nutrient in water already and then there's all the the sediments and and problems entering water with erosion and runoff and the floating water plants are a great harvester of that and then can be easily harvested for um compost and 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 retaining the nutrient back on the land um so that can be a, a great harvest in itself just simply for uh organic matter mulches and compost components um, but then um, you also have floating water chestnuts, the trappers, which are, are, are wonderful crops as well. They're not attached at all. They're totally floating. And floating gardens, I think, generally are very, very underrated. Uh, we've found floating gardens work fantastic in droughts because there's no drought if you're still floating on water. Um, and, um, and you don't have to water it and you don't have to weed it and you don't have to fertilize it. You more or less have to establish it, get it going and then crop it later on, which is a pretty good deal. Um, and then, of course, you have the uh, layers in the water itself, the suspended layers, uh, where you have uh, your fish and um, animals um, um, and uh, crustaceans, um, all your shrimps and, and crayfish, prawns and things. Uh, um, and then you have mollusks layers, which are um, they're all uh, layers in uh moving around in the mud down to about two meters so um six feet six foot six is your productive layer and um uh, the shellfish and mollusks all are, are bivalves that are continuously filled in water um and uh, sifting out the nutrients and they have an anal spike that injects straight into the mud phosphates so you have a great phosphate layer in the muds and most things out of water are, are high in phosphate as well, which is an advantage as a fertilizer. And the anaerobic soils can be dried out on the bank, and um, the anaerobes will then die and become food for aerobes, which you can speed up by inducing, introducing aerobic compost stimuli, and you get great fertilizing muds. So it's all getting real productive. Um, and then you've got your lower layer below the six foot six, two meter layer, which is not so productive and is your deep water layers, um, where it really does go anaerobic. Um, and I've probably missed a layer or two there because it's pretty fine stuff and, um, totally underrated. And if it wasn't for the salt cod of North, the North Atlantic, we'd all still be aquaculturists, um, and be having carp for Christmas dinner, uh, like they do in Eastern Europe. Um, uh, Turkey was not um, the dinner for Christmas uh, because uh, North America came a lot later than Jesus 
as far as uh, the domesticating of the turkey. Um, carp is the, uh, was always the European um, uh, meal, and that links to our aquaculture. Um, before it was sort of knocked out with the massive exploitation of the uh, cod of the North Atlantic, which is uh, one of the great phenomena of, of, of the ocean. Uh, one of the great phenomena of all time in the oceans. So, um, yeah, love the aquaculture. Plenty of layers there and uh, plenty to play with. And it's uh, a great um, area of aquaculture. Jeff Nugent in Western Australia sells bills, uh, uh, audio recording of a lecture he did in Perth on aquaculture. It's a cracker. It's really worth listening to. Bill's raving and going great, um, full of information, uh, raving about your uh, wild rice in, in North America and how it can be a, a very, very good uh, food security crop for small gardeners with small ponds. Um, and that's about it. Enjoy. Love it. It's not a fusty part of, um, of a growing system because there's no Department of Agriculture much, so no one's mucking about with us trying to make us do silly things. I, I think it's absolutely the case that aquatic systems are something that we should be doing more with ourselves um, in the United States. And it's, it's interesting that as you move into parts of the world where people are more dependent on locally produced food and, and self-produced food, the more you see aquatic systems used. And the further you move from uh, such areas to areas where you have a great deal of logistics. You take all the things that we take for granted in, in modern society, and you have huge amounts of arable farmland uh, like the Midwest, the less aquatic systems you see. And what that tells us is that when you need high productivity and you need to rely on it, it aquatic systems are one of the best available. But as the, the need declines the application of this highly productive system tends to wane. And, you know, you don't generally in aquatic systems produce the things that are on most American tables at dinner. Of course, we can go ahead and do that through things like aquaponics, which is basically just an aquatic system in a contained, controlled environment. So something to think about there. And something to think about as you're looking for land, ponds or pond sites is an incredible component to... Uh, a homestead. If you have ponds, they, they do so much for you with attracting wildlife. I was sitting at my little, in my little tiny pond. It'll be the biggest pond that'll ever be on this property. It was a, a nightmare to construct, but it's done and it's there. Uh, the other day, and I was watching the dragonflies, I was watching these minnows, I'm feeding my catfish these pellets, and you know, they'll eat really good for a couple days, and then they just don't eat for like a week. And the reason is there's so many minnows in that pond. Uh, they're they're gorging on minnows, I would imagine. The, the thing swarms and teams with minnows, frogs. I've got the turtle I'm still trying to kill. I almost assassinated a frog by accident last night. I saw the head coming up from underneath my floating uh, mint raft, and uh, I was like, that's a turtle. And I, I kind of looked in the scope and like, nah, that's a... That's a frog, so I'm glad I didn't lay waste to him. And it just, you know, my hope is that eventually I've seen two now uh, true bullfrogs in the pond, and if we can build up that population, then we will have uh, a meat source. So uh, I've also thrown snails into my my pond, uh, mystery snails. I bought some aquatic plants from my little garden ponds uh, made in stock tanks, and uh, 
these mystery snails, you know, they're the Chinese, Japanese, so they're supposed to survive our climate, no problem. Um, but they're like three or four bucks a piece at a pet store. And uh, so if you think about those things at three or four bucks a piece, if you put 20 of them in, that's a lot of money in snails you may never see again. But this place I bought some uh, water poppy and some other stuff from, they had a, uh, these the snails were like uh, 10 for two bucks or something like that. So I think I got like 40 of them, and I pitched them all on my pond. And again, I'm glad I didn't buy them from PetSmart for four bucks a piece. I, I then never never saw them again. I don't know if they're still in there or not, but I've not seen them, you know, crawling around or anything like that. But uh, they are edible, those those guys. So it is something to consider as well for aquatic systems. So I am pretty big on protein yields uh, from aquaculture. Uh, with that, before we uh, close up today with our song, let's remind you guys uh, that you can help support my show by joining what we call the Members Support Brigade. If you want to know more about that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. And that's all I'll say about that today because I have an announcement about T-SPAS. So T-SPAS is what I've been asking you to do to help support our show by not doing any additional work or spending any additional money. And it's still what you can do to do that with you have to make an extra click. So what I've been doing is I've been sending tspaz.com so just redirects to our Amazon item of the day on Amazon. Yesterday we got a nasty gram uh, from Amazon. It was a cordial nasty gram, but it was a nasty gram, and it said, you can't do this. This is not acceptable behavior. Um, and I didn't really understand why, but then I thought about it, and as I think about it, if I'm using a short domain to refer traffic, to just redirect it, I, I'm doing it completely legitimately. I'm telling you guys about it, and I put a link on my website that says T-SPAS, and you guys type in T-SPAS, and you know you're going to Amazon and what have you. But as you guys know, if you shop on Amazon through somebody's affiliate link, you, you, they get paid on whatever you buy for the next 24 hours, as long as you're on the same machine anyway. Um, so people can do nefarious things with short URLs or redirects, and push traffic through without the user maybe even knowing it, or even if they do, they just oh, what's that window and close it, and then there's no way for Amazon to be able to look and see, well, where is that traffic coming from? Because if they go to where the referral link is, they just get redirected back to themselves. So it makes making sure that nobody's doing anything wonky uh, difficult. They gave us five days to comply, and it took me about five minutes with uh, changing things. So tspaz.com now goes to a page on the Survival Podcast website, um, and it basically says, welcome to our Amazon gateway, and it says, click here to buy anything you want on Amazon, click here to see our current item of the day, and click here uh, to see everything we've ever listed as an item of the day, all the, all the past ones. And you just click the one you want and go forward. So it's actually probably better, because if you're not interested in the item of the day, you just click the first link and shop on Amazon. So now... You know, I said it's less work. Now it's about the same amount of work because now you got to do a click in one less letter. So you type tspaz.com, click a link and shop on Amazon, and you can support our show. I'm sorry that I can't keep it very simple. Tspaz, go to Amazon, buy it. But I can't lose the relationship we have with Amazon, and they said it's against the rules. I had some friends over last night, and they said, did you read where it says it's against the rules and the rules to make sure they're not lying to you? And I said... I don't care if it is or not. If they tell me I'm not allowed to do it, it's their game. I have to play it their way. Um, so I really appreciate you guys shopping on, on T-SPAS, which is just shopping on Amazon through the Survival Podcast. But 
I'm going to make that page a little prettier uh, in the future, and I'm going to make it more functional. And what I want to do eventually, as I said, is as I build up all these items of the day, so that you can go and, and look at a list, and you'll be able to say, okay, I want to see what Jack recommends for the kitchen, and specifically cookware. I want to see what Jack rec rep uh, recommends for tactical stuff, training with airsoft, that type of thing. And, and that way, over you know a, a couple years of doing this, we'll build up our best recommendations. And I don't know that item of the day will continue indefinitely. Um, I know I have enough stuff in my head to last for a year or two. And then we may just kind of phase out item of the day and just you know shop at the TSP Amazon Gateway. Um, but I know a lot of you guys buy stuff from Amazon all the time anyway. And there is no easier way that you can support us than you know shopping through our our, our Amazon gateway. I mean, it's it's, it's so simple. Tspass.com, click. Uh, and now if you bookmark that page, it'll actually bookmark the actual page, and you can always just go through there. You can do it on your phone, your tablet, your computer, whatever. Um, you can't shop through an affiliate link with the Amazon app, though. So that's the one limitation there. As far as I know, those of you like in other countries that have asked, what can you do? I don't think it. I can. Uh, actually sell as an affiliate like to Amazon UK or Amazon Canada or, or stuff like that. I think you just can't do it. I'd love to obviously have your business, but I, I don't think it can be done. Uh, if anybody knows otherwise, please let me know because people want to support us and it's easy. I'd, I'd love to have that. The other way you can support the entire community is by uh, Checking out the TSP business directory, we set that up so that you guys could do business with each other, and you can get there by going to tspbiz.com, or just click on business directory when you're on the Survival Podcast website, and uh, it is the place to find people to do business with and to be found by other members of the community, and today's um, supporter of the business directory is Deliberate Defense. They provide firearms training and NRA instructor certification. They are located in New Mexico. You can check them out at the TSP Business Directory, and there'll be a link in today's show notes. And that brings me to my final closing segment, the song of the day. I want to say something. I've been getting a lot of requests since I said I would take requests. Um, I can't obviously use them all. Uh, a lot of songs that I've gotten recently, I like the words, but I don't like screaming, yelling punk music, I'm just saying. Um, you can continue to send those to me because, I don't know, maybe I'll find another version of the song. And I do appreciate the lyrics, Uh, but when I play songs of the day, I play songs that I actually like to listen to. Um, maybe someday I'll bust off with some classical music or something for you just to really uh, to shake the boat or something. But uh, I don't do rap, and I don't do screaming music, and I don't do like... Um, there actually are some punk bands I really like, but most of the stuff I like by them are like the songs that aren't like all the rest of their songs. You know, like Greenfields of France from Drop Dropkick Murphy. Uh, the, the, what a great song! It's it's wonderfully done. It's a great vocal. It's it's amazing. And then I'm like, let's check these guys out. These guys kick ass. And everything else they do is not bad. It's just not my taste. So what I'm saying is, when you guys suggest a song, I I'm gonna sometimes make a determination not to play it, not because I don't like it, because it's not to my taste. And I know that music is very personal, and you may not like everything I play. But hopefully even those of you that don't listen to the song enjoy kind of the outtakes about it. I think most people will enjoy today's song choice, though. Um, this is actually one of the lesser-known hits 
from Creedence Clearwater Revival. There's some songs that are lesser known, but they weren't real, real popular. This song, when it came out in, in 1970, I believe, was actually pretty popular, but it kind of, you know, it's not like Fortunate Son, where as soon as you hear, dun, 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 everybody's like, oh, I know what that is, right? It's not like my looking out my back door, or have you ever seen the rain, or who will stop the rain, or, or those songs that everybody knows. But it, it really showcases John Fogarty's vocals as being just an amazing vocalist. And let me tell you something about this guy. Um, so this song was released in 1970. That's a little while ago, right? That's why one, two, three, four, almost five decades ago. It's 46 years? 46 years ago that this song was released. Two years ago, so that would have been 44 years after this song was released, Dorothy and I went to a Jimmy Buffett concert where um, the opening act for Jimmy Buffett and the Coral Reefer Band was one John Fogarty. The man has not missed a beat in those 46 years. He still is an amazing vocalist. He plays amazing music. He's amazingly talented. He's just an awesome dude. Love his music. And this song, Long As I Can See the Light, showcases his vocals in a way that makes you wonder, will anybody ever make music like this again? Will there ever be bands that make music like the the the, the incredible music made between about 1968 and about 1982 by bands like Creedence Clearwater Revival and Bachman Turner Overdrive and what have you? But this, this song actually, as simple as it is, and that's another thing about a lot of Fogarty and CCR's music, it's, it's short. It's not a long song. There's not a lot of words to it, but the words that are there have many meanings. And it starts out with, put a candle in the window because I feel I've got to move. Though I'm going, going, I'll be coming home soon, long as I can see the light. Pack my bag and let's get moving because I'm bound to drift a while. Though I'm gone, gone, you don't have to worry long as I can see the light. Guess I've got that old traveling bone because this feeling won't leave me alone. But I won't, won't be losing my way long as I can see the light. That's really the whole song. And I think this is obviously, and there's a lot of music that, that, that CCR and, and, and Fogarty, uh, John Fogarty made that were about the life as, as, as you know, the traveling band, right? There's even that song called that, right? Playing for a traveling band and being gone and, and, and wanting to come home. But good art has always multiple interpretations. And to me, this isn't just necessarily about traveling. It's about understanding that the place that you truly love, the place that you really feel is home, is always a place that you can come back to. And while I'm going to play this song for you today, I'm going to recommend that you think about checking out another song by CCR maybe over the weekend. Look it up for yourself. Uh, that really is absolutely about that. It's definitely a better known song, but I don't think most people really pay attention to the words in it. It's called Green River. And uh, that's a song that if you hear that one, if you're familiar with music from this era, you just... And you're like, oh, that's, that's Green River, right? But, I mean, toward the end of the song, basically, he's told by the guy at the mill that uh, when you go out, you're going to find that the world is just burning. It's falling apart. But remember, you can always come home to Green River. And there's a common theme like that through a lot of John Fogarty's music, not just the music that he did. It's part of one of the greatest rock bands and shortest-lived rock bands of all time, but as an independent solo artist. The, the, the concept of always coming home. It's Friday. The weekend is ahead of you. 
You may spend time at home or away from home, but remember, if you're doing it right, home is the place you most want to be. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. <laughs>